That's right. Mary had a good word in prayer this morning. I should share it, actually. You know, our, 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 the heart for our church is that we exist to see dry places saturated with the presence of God. That we want dry and thirsty hearts all over this landscape to experience the life-giving power and presence of God. And Mary had a word that oftentimes, uh, you want to come up and share this maybe? Yeah, come up and share this word. I felt like it was, it was, it was for us. <laughs> That's okay. Um, as a voice teacher, I'm always dealing with uh, preaching about stay hydrated, stay hydrated. And when we were praying this morning, it just kept running through my head, stay hydrated. Because if you get to the point of dehydration, your body stops feeling the need for water and you actually dry up and die. But if we regularly take in water, we thirst for more. And then I just pictured the desert floor, the, the dirt that's so dry, it's cracked. And even when the rain comes flooding down, it rolls off the ground. It won't take it in unless the rain continues to fall. And it just reminded me that, the, that staying in the, the word of God, that the water of the word, it allows it to um, hydrate the body. It allows it to saturate the ground so that the more the rain comes, the more the ground soaks it up. So it's so important daily to be in the Word of God and, and filled with His Spirit. It's yeah, a good word. Uh, also, next week, we begin, um, we're going to, I don't know, we don't have a name for it. We're just going to do a barbecue. We're going to do meals after every Sunday in the month of July. And so next month, invite your friends and family to stick around afterwards. We're going to have lots of food in the cafe after church. And we're going to just enjoy each other's company. We're going to hear, uh, over the month of July, uh, we're going to hear from some some pretty powerful women uh, in our church, um, some some of the the. the the, the ladies who are, are becoming pastors in our church, as well as my mother, is going to share a word uh, this this month. And I'm really excited. I, I haven't heard her speak in a long time. She was my middle school and my high school pastor. I couldn't get away from her. <laughs> I'll tell the story really quick. I told Andrea this last night, but my mom was my middle school pastor, and I, we had this really awesome high school pastor. He played video games. He wore his hat backwards. He was a cool guy. And I just couldn't wait to graduate to high school to be in his youth group. But right as I was transitioning from middle school to high school, he left the church. And guess who, guess who became the new high school pastor? My mom. So I love you, Mom, if you're watching online. I'm really grateful that you were my pastor, middle school and high school. Well, this is our sixth and our final week in our series through the book of Judges. And uh, if you've been tuning in, you know that uh, we've been talking about a topic of, of spiritual entropy, that if we don't attend, if we, just like Mary was saying, if we don't allow the water to continually come and saturate the ground, then entropy ensues. We naturally gravitate towards chaos and disorder. And think about those seasons in your life. All of us can identify seasons in our life where we've left the Bible on the shelf collecting dust, or we haven't been intentional about spending time with the Lord, and we've seen our, we've seen our spiritual life trail off, and, and pretty soon anxiety and fear and all these other things, they, they come after that. And so we're looking at the story of Israel and how Israel has come into the promised land, and they've, they've inhabited the, the place that for hundreds and hundreds of years God promised that they would inhabit. They're finally there. And instead of taking advantage 
of the peace and the prosperity and the goodness that God has given them. They were thankful at first. They were grateful at first. But after a while, they stopped being thankful. They stopped being grateful. And they slipped into sin and pain. And pretty soon they were attacked by nations. And they cried out to God for help. And God would send them a deliverer, a judge. And this cycle happened 12 times. And so we've been looking at the signs of spiritual entropy and how we can intercept those signs. And today we're going to talk about the final sign Turn with me to Judges chapter 10, verse 10 through 14. We're going to read about the final sign right here. It says this. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And the Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mosquito Bites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you've forsaken me, and you've served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Whoa. Go and cry to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Oh, this is a harsh word. This passage seems to create a picture that God's people are crying out for help, and they're crying out for forgiveness, and God refuses to help them and refuses to forgive them. How can this be? Doesn't, all, doesn't God always forgive us of our sins when we ask? Absolutely, he does. His word is very clear on that, that when you ask, he forgives you. But the problem is, is that Israel, they're not fully repentant. They haven't fully repented. Their sorrow is not over their sin. Their sorrow is over being caught. Oh, no, my sin landed me here, and I don't like here. God, I need you to save me. But their sorrow isn't over their sin, that they've wounded the heart of God. Their sorrow is that they're now in a predicament. They're now in pain. They've been caught. So the sign of spiritual entropy that we're going to talk about today is this, is that entropy ensues when we cry out to God for help because we are facing pain, but not because we are truly sorry for our sin. We're going to talk about repentance today, what true repentance is. And this week, as I've been studying this, you know, repentance has this word. It's, it's, got, this, it's got this connotation to it that repentance is kind of this, like, dark and brooding, sticky word. And we kind of get uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but I get uncomfortable when I hear the word repentance. I'm like, oh, man, this is heavy. This feels heavy. When I think of repentance, I think of Old Testament people putting on sackcloth and covering their heads in dust and them tearing their clothes. It's a heavy word. But what we find out in the New Testament is that repentance is a beautiful gift of God. And we need to recognize it as that, church. Repentance is a beautiful gift of God, if we would see it that way. In his book, Green Lights, actor Matthew McConaughey, has anybody read this book? I have read it on the plane going somewhere this last year, and... It's pretty entertaining. But he, talk, he talks about a time when he got caught stealing a pizza. And the owner of the store called his dad and told him that he had stole a pizza. So his dad came to him and asked him, did you steal this pizza? And he flat out lied to his father. He told him that, he had, he didn't, that they paid for the pizza. But, but the, he, he describes in his book that the, kind of the rule in the family, the unspoken rule in the family was that you'd get in more trouble for getting caught than you would from stealing. I mean, he'd seen his dad steal a ton of pizzas, but he never got caught. 
And so this time that his dad asks him if he stole the pizza, he lied to his dad and he got the crud beat out of him because he stole, but not because, or not because he stole, but because he got caught. And Mr. McConaughey says in his book that he wishes he would have told his dad the truth because he doesn't think that he, w- he would have gotten in as much trouble. He got in trouble for getting caught. And that's oftentimes an attitude that we have is we're sorry when we get caught. We're sorry when there's punishment attached to it. We're sorry when there's consequences attached to it. But we don't truly learn to hate the sin. And we don't truly learn to hate the fact that we've grieved the heart of God. When you've got kids... You know, how many of you have got kids who hurt another sibling and, and you tell them to apologize to the other kid? They hit each other. You need to go apologize to your sister right now. What do they do? Sorry. Uh, no, come on. You need to be a little bit more heartfelt than that. I'm sorry. Okay, now give her a hug. And they walk away. They're, they're my kids are sorry that they got caught. They're sorry that there's a punishment attached to what is coming, right? That, that what they did has consequences. They say sorry, but, it, but it's not this remorse for their, for their actions. Sin causes us pain, and sin eventually leads to death. And we all want to escape pain and death, don't we? We all, want, we all are trying so hard to find a way to escape pain. We find coping mechanisms. We try to escape pain, and we try to escape death all we can. But have you ever noticed that for as hard as we try to avoid pain and death, God never promises to take away those things while we're on earth. God never promises to take away pain. He wants to see you healed. He, his desire is for you to be healed. But he, that doesn't mean that you'll never experience pain and discomfort throughout your life. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants you to live with him forever, but it doesn't mean that you're going to avoid death. We all, we all have a condition. We're all going to die someday. And God never promises an escape from those things. But sin makes the weight of pain and death feel unbearable. Because in the midst of our sin, we feel separate from God. We feel alone. We feel isolated. There's nobody to carry that weight with you. And repentance is surrendering the weight of pain. It's surrendering the weight of that anxiety and that stress and that fear upon Jesus. And it makes the pain of life bearable because you know that Jesus is walking with you and he's helping you carry the load. That's why he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy and my burden is like, cast your, cast your anxiety on me. Give me the weight. Let me carry the load. And when we repent and we come to God, all these things that are unavoidable, the pain of life, the death we're going to experience, all those things that are unavoidable, they suddenly become Bearable, not just bearable, but Paul talks about taking joy in your suffering, that he actually rejoices in the midst of pain. That's a kingdom thing, church. That's not, that doesn't belong to anywhere else. That's a kingdom thing. That when you repent and you are with God, you can actually learn to rejoice in the midst of pain. It's kind of, 
unfathomable. It's un- unthinkable. What happens next in the story of Israel really brings hope to our hearts. Don't worry, this, this story takes a turn for the good. Let's continue on. Judges 10, verses 15 and 16. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best. But please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. The first repentance was not authentic. They hadn't even got rid of, they hadn't even got rid of their idols. They were still in the camp. They had no intention of changing. God, we need your help. We're stuck. But I'm not going to do anything different. I'm not going to change. I just want you to wave your magic God wand, my fairy godmother, and fix my problem. And true repentance says, God, you do what you think is best. Come what may, come the consequences for my sin. Come what may, you do what you think is best. I just want to be close to you again. I don't care what price I have to pay. I don't care what consequences ensue. And when the people repented in this way, God's heart grew tender toward them. His heart grew tender toward them. The title of of my message today is A Tender Heart. Not only because God's heart grows tender towards his people, but his goal is that our hearts would be tender. That we would have tender hearts to the Lord. And God could not stand to see his people in misery when his heart grew tender towards them and they repented fully. True repentance comes with these three things. I'm going to talk about three things about repentance today. True repentance comes from a real awareness of our sin. A real awareness of our sin. True repentance hates sin. False repentance hates the consequences of sin. False repentance is concerned with what's going to happen next. Am I in trouble? What's going to be my punishment? I hope it's not too severe. And when we truly repent, we have an attitude like Israel's that eventually said, you do what you think is best, God. I don't care about the consequences. I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to make things right and to be close to you again. And it's hard to get there, church. It's hard to be in a place. And oftentimes we wait till we're at the bottom of the barrel. We wait till we hit rock bottom, and it's easier to change than it is to stay where you are. We wait until it's easier to reach out to God than to continue living in sin. We don't do it sooner because it's, it feels like if I expose myself, if I repent, if I confess, if I, if I expose myself, if I bring this stuff in my life to the light, then my life's going to be different forever. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to feel shame. I'm going to feel guilt. Everybody's going to know, and we have all these concerns about the consequences. And so we wait till we're at rock bottom, but God doesn't want us to wait there. But here's the beautiful thing about God's grace, church. It's often in the midst of our humiliation, in the midst of our brokenness, That's where we most discover the unfathomable grace of God, that he is good despite our failures. It's often when we're at the bottom and we feel broken and we're exposed. Everything is in the light. We feel torn apart. We feel undone. How many of you have ever been there before? 
I've been there before, where you just feel undone. You feel like everything is just on the table for everybody to see. And there's no hiding anything anymore. But it's in those moments of humility and brokenness where we discover the most God's great goodness, his grace over our life. The most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible is Psalm 103. It comes from Deuteronomy. Psalm 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and he's gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When they messed up, what was the first thing that they did? They hid. Why? Because they didn't truly believe that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. They were afraid of the consequences. What's going to happen? And God comes and he shows them his grace. He clothes them. He protects them. He's gracious and compassionate. See, Paul communicates in Romans the paradox of our sin bringing us closer to God. It's really ironic. It's ironic that in the midst of our brokenness and humiliation and failure, that's where we feel the most connected to God when we humble ourselves. And, Ro- and Paul talks about this in Romans. Romans 5.20, he says, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That even though I pressed harder and harder into my sin, even though I was in the, in the darkest place of my life, God's grace got even more brighter, even more powerful. And I realized that there's really nothing that his grace can't overcome. Oftentimes we think to ourselves, yeah, but God, it's really, it's really easy to believe that God can forgive everybody else of their mistakes. But when it comes to your mistakes, come on, that's another story. God, does, man, you don't know what I've done. God, you don't understand. I don't, I don't think you can ever forgive what I've done. Now, what you're actually saying is Jesus' blood was powerful enough for everybody else, but it was not powerful enough for my mistakes. My mistakes, they're more powerful than the blood of Jesus. And that's arrogance. That's pride. When we have a real awareness of our sin, we become undone in the presence of God. And this is exactly where God wants you to be because he can use broken and undone people. When people experienced the presence of God in the Old Testament, what did they do? They would cry out, oh, no, we're going to die. They would experience the presence of God and say, we're going to die. We've seen the face of God. We've experienced the presence of God. I'm, I have unclean lips Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has this encounter in the presence of God, and he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among unclean people. I'm going to die. I'm undone. And that is exactly the place where God commissioned Isaiah. And when we recognize our sin and we have hearts that truly repent, we find that God is so much more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. His grace is so much more powerful than we could have ever imagined. We think in the midst of our brokenness, there's no way out. There's no way to fix this. It'll never be the same. But God says, no, I can redeem even that. I can make it even better than it was in the past. And isn't this awareness of God's grace in our life, despite our sin, isn't this awareness what makes us great at sharing the gospel? The awareness of God's presence, the awareness of God's grace in spite of of our flaws, creates in us the ability to share that grace with others who do not love us very well. 
It is God's grace towards us that allows us to, to love even our enemies. When we recognize that I have been loved, I have been shown grace despite my flaws, despite my mistakes, that is what makes us powerful sharers of the gospel. Because we extend that same grace to other people. We can show it to even our enemies. Many of us are aware of when we sin because we've been created in, in the image of God. And that means that we've all been created with a conscience. We've all been created in the image of God. Every person has been given this a conscience, a compass in their spirits to tell them what's right and what's wrong. Even the most immoral of people, they have somewhat of a compass, somewhat of a conscience. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, this is the New Living Translation. It says, even Gentiles, that's you and me, unless you're a Jew in the family in the house today, welcome. But even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. We all have a conscience that tells us if what we're doing is wrong or if it's right. If we need to exit or if we need to stay on the path. We've all been given tools to identify sin in our lives, but what happens over time is what Paul describes as a searing of the conscience. It happens in many lives. There's this searing of the conscience. And if the conscience is seared, literally, if the conscience is cauterized, then it has been rendered insensitive. And such a conscience does not work properly. It's as if there's this spiritual scar tissue over our hearts. There's this spiritual scar tissue over our conscience, and it's dulled our sense of what's right and wrong. It's when you keep living in the same pattern of sin over and over again, and at first, you feel really guilty about it. The first time you ever did it, it was like, oh, this is wrong. And you heard the voice of the Lord say, no, 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 this is wrong. You felt your conscience that God created you with go, no, this is wrong. But you begin to go, shh, 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 shh. nope, I don't want to hear it. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. Shut up, nope, nope. Holy Spirit, step, don't convict me right now. I'm going to pretend like I don't listen to you. I'm not, and the more we do that, the more we sear our conscience. And we get this spiritual scar tissue. And our hearts become stone. They begin to get hard. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who consciences are seared. How can false teachers lie with no shame and spread deception with no compunction, no conviction in their life? Because they have seared their consciences. They are past feeling that lying is wrong. They've done it so much. Their heart is turned to stone. And if we're not careful, this is what happens in our life. I felt like Mary's word was so appropriate because if, if, you, if you, that, that dry ground, that even when the Holy Spirit washes over that stony heart with his truth, if it's been seared, if it's been dried up, it's just going to wash by. It won't sink in. It won't soak into the ground. Some of us, 
have seared consciences in areas of our lives, and we've stopped believing that it's wrong, or maybe we've just justified our sin with phrases like, well, everybody's doing it, so it can't be that bad. Our, our culture says it's okay. Like, everybody's doing it. Or maybe I've just been so stressed lately. I deserve it. Well, we, I think many of us have lied to ourselves with that one. I, I've just been stressed. I mean, what's it going to hurt if I do it one time? Come on, I deserve it. I'm just really stressed. And what the, what the Bible encourages us to do is to have our hearts searched. When we have seared consciences, we can't accurately figure out, like, what's wrong. And the author of Psalm 139, David, he writes this. In Psalm 139, 23 through 24, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. It's when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. It's the very sign of his presence. It's when we notice that something is wrong, it's the sign that God is working in you. That he is he's tell, he's speaking to you, he's talking to you, his presence is in you. And when you notice your failures, when you notice your flaws, it's God's presence in you, giving you that ability. It's God's gift of repentance. I'd encourage you today. And church, nobody escapes this message. Not even myself. This, this message is for me. Nobody escapes this message, but we all need to do this sometime this week. Because we need to ask someone who knows you well if they see any dirt that you've missed. And our responsibility is to humbly take an inventory. Is to ask somebody we trust. Ask somebody who knows us well. What do you see in my life? Is there some dirt that I've missed? Is there something I'm not seeing? And we humbly receive that. We take an inventory. We say, God, is there some truth to this? It might really tick you off when they tell you. <laughs> and you gotta, you're going to work hard to not get defensive and put up walls. Oh, yeah? Oh, you see that? Well, this is what I see in your life. <laughs> So we work hard at not being defensive, but we ask and we humbly take inventory. The second thing is this. True repentance comes with genuine sorrow for breaking God's heart and hurting others. A genuine sorrow. True repentance does not regret parting ways with sin. False repentance does. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. True repentance is often characterized by a godly anger about the terrible nature of sin. And this zealous indignation is concerned with God's glory and the flourishing of God in humanity. This, this, this longing to see God fully manifested in, in humanity, to see his presence on the earth. But false repentance is less concerned about the glory of God and more concerned with getting caught. And this type of concern is what Paul describes as worldly grief. 
It's this worldly grief that leads to death. It's this fear of getting caught, fear of being punished. So how do we experience genuine sorrow? Because if I'm honest, I, I disconnect my sin with how it makes God feel. I disconnect those two things, and I think, well, he's not, I mean, everybody sins, so he's not really that, he's not heartbroken over my sin. Now, everybody does it, right? And I disconnect those two things. So, so how do we receive a broken heart over our sin? One of the biggest hindrances of, of obtaining a broken heart is our neglect of the relational aspect of sinning. There's a relational aspect of sinning. It's this breaking of a covenant, of a promise that you made with God. And by this, I mean that we can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy. When we make a mistake, we say, oh, man, I did a bad thing. I broke God's law. Instead of going, oh, I betrayed my one true love. I broke the intimacy I have with my father. I broke the promise that I made to him to love him with all of my heart, my soul, and my mind, and my strength. What have I done? The only grief we experience is disappointment and in our inability to do what is right, and not that we have despised the living God. This is what the prophet Nathan said when he came to David. After David killed Uriah and, and slept with Bathsheba and got her impregnated, and Nathan comes and rebukes him. And Nathan doesn't say, look what you did to Bathsheba and how you wronged Uriah. Look at the people that you hurt. What does Nathan say to David? He says this in 2 Samuel twelve nine. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have despised the word of the Lord. You have broken God's heart. You've despised the God who gave you the kingdom. He gave you the, he gave you the throne. He made you a promise that your descendants would reign upon the throne. There would be an everlasting kingdom. And look how you have despised God. You've broken God's heart. And how does David respond? He responds in Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, he has a humble heart. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David rightly saw his failures in terms of relationship. And as a result, his heart was grieved, as it can be only when we have sinned against the one we love so much. His heart was grieved and was broken for what he did to the Lord. Sin is not only an offense against the one that you've wronged, it is most importantly unfaithfulness to the God you promised to love. And I've realized in my life that there has been sin that I do not feel complete sorrow for, that I have not felt complete sorrow for in the past because my conscience has been seared in those areas. And how does God take a conscience that has been cauterized, a heart that's been turned to stone, and make it soft again? How does he do that? He does it with the power of his spirit. And Ezekiel 36, verse 26, he says this. He says, I'll pour pure water over you. This is the message translation. I'll pour pure water over you and scrub you clean. I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the stone heart. And we got to remember that in ancient times, where they didn't have, a, they didn't have an understanding of the, the brain and the mind and how this is kind of where conscious thought comes from, they thought that our conscience was here in your heart. 
And God says, I will remove the stone heart from your body and replace it with a heart that is God-willed, not self-willed. I'll put my spirit in you and make it possible for you to do what I tell you and live by my commands. He gives us a new heart. When we hum, this is the gift of repentance, church. When we come to God and we humbly say, I, I'm wrong. I broke your heart. And I'm willing to do whatever you think is best. Come what may, come the consequences. God rips out the stone heart and he puts a heart of flesh in us where we can feel and listen to his commands. He trades our stone hearts for flesh. A heart that's living, that's breathing, that's feeling, able to love sacrificially in return. And we don't even have to wonder when, where, and how we can step into the fight against sin and injustice because he'll be there. And he's going to be leading us down every turn because he's given us a heart that seeks and pursues him. So then when our hearts break for what breaks his, we're awoken to the limiting nature of our humanness. In exchange for the vast contrast of God's limitless character. We are awoken to, man, I mess up. Our eyes are really opened up to that, but then we also, that truth is exchanged for the greater truth that God has a limitless character of faithfulness, and he'll never let you down. He'll never, he'll never let you go. He'll never say no when you ask with repentance for forgiveness, and his redemptive nature takes even the most painful of circumstances, and it still finds a way to reassemble every last broken piece to achieve his purpose. Some of us have made some huge mistakes, and we look back on our past, and we live this life of woulda, shoulda, coulda. I wish I had a time machine. I wish I could go back. I wish I could undo what I said or undo what I did. I'm sorry for that, but you can't. But God takes all the broken pieces, and he uses it for something that's even greater than what you could have ever imagined. We don't often trust that. We don't trust the reality of that, but it's true. God takes even the most painful of circumstances and uses it for his good. The last thing, true repentance comes with this. It comes with a commitment to change. It comes with a commitment to change. It's not just I'm sorry. It's I'm going to change. I'm going to do something differently. True repentance accepts godly counsel and accountability False repentance avoids accountability. False repentance is often characterized by a resentment for authority and a confidence in in somebody's ability to live a holy life. I'm going to do this on my own. I don't want anybody to know about it. I'm going to do it on my own. And sadly, this is often self-deception. And it's the real reason that the falsely repentant rejects accountability because they don't yet want to abandon their sinful habit. They don't want to let go. False repentance is scary. It's really scary because it can trick us into thinking that we've repented when in reality we've only found a more crafty way to go about our sin. We got caught, so I'm going to figure out a way to not get caught. Let me ask you, maybe you're in this room this morning, and church, this is, I'm talking about this today because I believe it, I believe God is doing something in the church where holiness is coming back to the forefront, 
where righteousness is coming back to the forefront, where the church is going to shine bright, not because they're full of perfect people. Why We don't come to church all shiny and put together as perfect people, but we, the church, God is doing something in the church where we recognize how broken we are, and we live lives of honesty and integrity and transparency, a life of holiness, and we come to God and we say, God, I'm not perfect, but I'm pursuing you, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make things right. The church is going to be marked by this. I believe that this generation of the church has come into the forefront as a church that says, give me, a, give me clean hands and a pure heart, God. Show me, show me how to live this life so that I can please you. So let me ask you, is there something, is there some form of sin that you constantly long for? Do you love sin more than Jesus and, you're, and find yourself only hating its consequences? Do you avoid brothers and sisters in the church who will be honest with you about your sin because you don't want to be held accountable? I'm here to tell you that there's still hope for you, that God has a plan for you. I want to close. I want to invite Mary to come up on the piano as we, we're going to take communion in a moment, but I wanted to read this story from John chapter 8 as we close. It's the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. And this story shows us something about the character, the nature of God. John 8 verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't even know what he was writing. I really want to know. It's going to be one of the first tapes I play when I get to heaven. He began to write with his finger in the ground. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, he declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, the nature of Jesus is first one of compassion and one of mercy that says, I don't condemn you. But it's also a nature that says, now go and sin no more, that I have bigger plans for you. I have bigger things for you to do. And it's going to involve a commitment to change. True repentance has to involve a commitment to change. The word repentance in the Bible literally means the act of changing one's mind. But it's not just this intellectual changing of the mind. It's this about face. It's an about face. It's a 180 in the way that you're living. If you're walking towards 
sin, if you're walking towards the ways of culture or the ways of the world, repentance is saying, you know what? I'm going to, I know that this is wrong. I've broken your heart, God. I'm going to start walking this way now. I'm going to, I'm going to start doing things differently. Erdman's Bible Dictionary includes this definition of repentance. It says, in its fullest sense, it is a term for complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. It's deliberately redirecting your life in the other direction. And church, let me tell you how appropriate it is that we're about to take communion. Because the act of communion was given to us so that we would have something tangible to represent intimacy with God. We see all the way back in the first books of the Bible, this foreshadowing of New Testament communion that was represented in the tabernacle at the table of showbread where the priests would come and they would break bread and they would drink wine. And it was this table of intimacy in the Holy of Holies. It was this table of intimacy in the holy place, the place of the tabernacle, the place of meeting in the midst of God's presence. And it's God saying to the people, even at the very beginning of time, the very beginning of it all, that I desire intimacy with my church. It's the whole reason that he constructed the tabernacles because he wanted to be with his people. But Jesus, he gave new meaning to communion just before he went to the cross. Not only is it an act of intimacy with God, but Jesus said, this is my blood that's going to be shed for the forgiveness of your sin." so that you can have true intimacy with me, that you can truly be close to me. And this bread is my body that's broken for you so that your body can experience true healing. He gave new meaning to the act of communion. So church, open up the bread. We're going to take the bread first. Jesus, what a gift repentance is. What a beautiful gift. Lord, that you're waiting with arms open, just as you did with the woman caught in adultery, that, Lord, you did not condemn her, and you do not condemn us. You came, John 3, 16, excuse me, John 3, 17, that you came to give us life, not to condemn us. We receive that, Jesus. We receive your grace. And I pray for any person who's here whose heart is heavy, it's made of stone, whose heart is heavy with the burden of sin, who feels that repentance is just too much to ask for. It's too much pain. It's too much consequence. It's too much. God, I pray you would reveal to them the beauty of repentance that it's actually you waiting with open arms to usher us into something even bigger than we could have ever imagined. We want that with you, God. We want intimacy with you, true intimacy. And so, Father, we take the bread. And we thank you that you broke your body so that we can be close to you and that our bodies can find wholeness, healing, in every sense of the word. God, you were pierced, you were stabbed with spears, you had a crown of thorns placed on your head. You were whipped, you were lashed, you were spit on, you were beat. Because you saw this moment, and 
you saw the people whose hearts were made of stone. They said, I don't know how to go forward from here. I don't know how to do this. You invite us to give it to you, Jesus. Let's take the bread together. Take the cup. Jesus, we're so grateful for this blood because every one of us can say that I've tried. I've tried to do it on my own power. I've tried to muscle through. I've tried to be better. I've tried to pray more. I've tried to read my Bible more. I've tried to go to church more. I've tried to be better. I've tried to be more holy. I've tried to do it myself. But it never works. It never works. I always fall short. Why? Because Jesus says this is the only way. Your freedom comes when you recognize that you're broken, when you recognize that you need a Savior. And it's what brings us even more intimacy with our Jesus. So Jesus, we thank you for the gift, for the sacrifice of your blood on the cross. And we come to you once again. Let's take the cup together. Church, would you stand with me? Just put your hands out as if you're going to receive a gift. Let me just pray over you. If there's somebody in here, you know, this corporate setting, I don't believe is the place for, for confession and for repentance. I think that this week, if there is something on your heart, if there's something in your chest that you need to release to God, find somebody this week. You can give me a phone call if you need to. You can talk to somebody that you trust. You could find somebody and just lay it all out there so you can start fresh so that God can rip out that stony heart and he can put in you a, a heart of flesh once again. And that's what we want, Jesus. So, Father, soften our hearts. Make us, Lord, give us the grace to repent. Lord, we don't want to make the mistake that Israel did. We want to say with all sincerity, you do what you think is best. So, Father, come. Do what you think is best. We love you, Jesus. We give you everything. In your precious name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen. I love you, church. See you next Sunday for our July barbecues or July food after church. It's going to be a good time. Invite some friends and family. We'll see you later.